What's up, everyone, and welcome to The Long Game Podcast, hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Jacob Turner. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to you and your situation. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. All opinions expressed on this show are for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. Nothing on The Long Game Podcast should be considered advice. Always consult with your team of professionals before making any decisions regarding your finances. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Thomas Kopelman, and I'm actually really excited about today's episode because I feel like this is the antithesis of um, financial services is like saying stuff that people don't understand. And I think, Thomas, you and I have both gotten into an industry that we really want to make sure we're bringing credible financial information to people. So today, I'm super excited to talk about some of the misconceptions that we see that are either out there, whether it's on social media or just general misconceptions that people have around money, taxes, investing, et cetera. Me too, man. I think um, there's a lot of them. I, I mean, we went through and we were prepping for this podcast and we almost had to cut down on the ones that we were going to talk about because I can just think of like 50 different things that people have wrong and whether it's ideas from things that our parents told us, whether it's just like we get the fragmented truth, like you hear one line of something when in reality, like it means something different. People just don't go into the deeper meaning of that. But either way, I'm really excited about this one. So I think we just kind of kick it off with the first one. And I think this is something that I see all the time is that people think, hey, if I leave money in my business, it's not taxed. Right. Mm. I don't know if this is something that many business owners talk to you about. And I think it's just this misconception on entity structure, right? So there are businesses where there is no tax on the money with if you keep it in the business, kind of, right? So with the C Corp, this is the only type with a C Corp, money that's in the business still does get taxed. It just gets taxed at a corporate tax rate. But in every other type, in an LLC taxes an S Corp, if it's a partnership, if it's a sole prop, et cetera. Whether you take money out or whether you leave money in the business, it is taxed to you at your own personal tax rate. And so what these are called is pass-through entities. Pretty self-explanatory, right? Profits of the business pass through to the owner's tax return. Yeah, and I think so... I hear the term shadow taxes a lot when people talk about retirement planning and you think about some of the different elements that potentially come into play from a tax planning perspective there. Things that you don't typically think about on a general tax return like Medicare planning and stuff like that. But I think shadow taxes also come in for business owners because the reality is you're going to be paying taxes on the money that's inside your business. And I think it also goes back to making sure that you're planning around the the, the expectation that you're going to owe taxes, whether you keep that money in the business or not, you need to make sure that you have money set aside to pay those taxes. And I think this misconception comes up a lot because it's kind of like phone tag. Somebody says something one time and the second person understood 90% of it. And then they tell the next person and they're like, they understood 90% of it. But then by the time it gets to the 10th or 11th person, it's really only 5% of the truth. And then they heard something on social media that only vaulted the wrong idea in their head. And they think that, oh, well, if I keep it in the business, I don't owe any taxes. Unfortunately, it's just not true. Yeah, I think it's, this is a really important first step because the way that you manage your business changes by knowing this, right? Like if you think that leaving money in the business means you don't get taxed, you are going to be a cash flow heavy business, right? You're going to say, I'll take out what I need. I might as well leave it back in the business and then I can reinvest it over time or distribute it when I need to. But 
be knowing that it is taxed changes the way that you handle your money, right? It means that you should, same with your personal life, money should have a goal, right? So that's emergency fund, you know, maybe it's saving because you're gonna have a new hire or you're gonna buy something, maybe it's saving for taxes, maybe it's for end of year bonuses or maxing out your solo 401k, that makes sense, right? There's a goal behind that. But other than that, you really shouldn't be holding cash in the business because there's the opportunity cost of, well, what else could it be used for? And two, you're going to pay the taxes whether you distribute it or leave it in the business. So make the decision aware of that info. Yeah, I think is a lot of times too, to your point, if people are keeping money in the business, they generally don't have any specific reason for why they're doing it. They're just saying like, I've been storing money in my business. But oftentimes, especially now with what you can get on, on essentially risk-free money and risk-free rates of return are north of or around 5%. If you're not in some sort of business savings account that's really advantageous for you, you're probably leaving a ton of money on the table. And that's not to say that you shouldn't keep some money in your business and that you don't have to maximize every IRR percentage point possible to you because you might be using some of it to grow your business in the future. It is important to make sure that if you don't have clear direction for every dollar, you need to figure out what that direction is going to be or you are going to leave a bunch of money on the table. Totally. All right, Jacob, I'm curious, what's the first one that comes to your mind? All right. So this one, uh, this one's always personal to me because when I first got into filing tax returns and I remember when I filed my first tax return, I was so excited because my CPA said, if I did X, Y, Z move, I could save money in taxes this year. And that just set this thing in motion of like every single year, I want to try to pay as low as taxes I possibly can in this given year, because it was this instant gratification of, I feel like I'm winning. And then I come to realize that taxes are not this yearly game, right? Taxes are this lifetime game. And there's this common misconception out there that if your goal is to pay the lowest amount in taxes, you should try to do that every single year. And what I will say is my experience has been quite the opposite, that in some years, I'm willing to pay ten dollars or even $100,000 more in taxes because I know that over the lifetime, that will save me money in taxes. I think this is such a misconception. And I think ultimately, a lot of times it comes in because people don't have coordination amongst their financial team. And maybe they have one person on their financial team that it's going to feel really good if they're able to tell the client that they get to save money in that given year and they get that instant gratification. But maybe that person that told them that doesn't understand what their five or 10 or 15 year strategy is. Yeah, it's a mindset mindset shift. I think for so long, tax planning wasn't really something that anybody thought about or talked about. It was really all tax planning was is here's what happened last year how do I make sure that I am paying the least amount of taxes, right? Because you, you, all you talk to is a CPA and you're like, well, how do I reduce this dollar amount? And, and I get it, right? Like nobody wants to pay more in taxes this year than they need to. And I still think your goal should be to make sure that you utilize the deductions you have, file it correctly so that dollar amount is low. But the goal is that you lower your lifetime taxes. And so you talked about this, right? When you left, when you were done with baseball, you've been doing a bunch of Roth conversions. You've been doing all Roth contributions. And that is not going to make your tax bill as low as possible in these years. Actually, it's going to make it irregularly high relative to the income that you're making. I know that the conversion counts as income, but relative to the income you're generating from work, but that's the right decision for you because you might be in the lowest bracket that you've ever been in, in your life. And so I think this is a really important mindset shift. And I think the other little caveat that I'll add to this is that on the same note, people think, Hey, how do I make sure I get the largest return possible? I saw a video you put out the other day, right? Like if you give money to the IRS and you get money back, it's an interest-free loan. And whether I think that's that important or not, I think I think it's really important for people to know this because 
I'll have somebody and they'll be like, I got money back last year. I should get money back this year, right? And it's like, you switch jobs, you might have filed your W-9 differently. You might have RSUs now that should have been withheld at 37%, but they're withheld at 22%. There really is no difference here. It, it's all about how much in tax do you owe? Your W-9 is a guess, right? Or like you're withholding, your W-4, your withholdings is a guess, right? Like they're trying to do the best they can, but at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily coincide with your actual tax estimate. Yeah. One other thing that I'll add on this topic specifically is I think there's a lot of people that as they start to make more money and they start to climb closer to what's called seven figures of income a year, they think that there's going to be some catch-all solution for them that's going to help them not pay any taxes because maybe they've heard in potential political debates that the rich don't pay any taxes. And let me assure you that there is no legal loophole for you to not pay any taxes. So I think that brings us to, to one of the points that you made, Thomas. So I'm curious what your next thought is on the biggest misconceptions that you see. Yeah, I think the next one is, I, I think there's both sides to this. Either tax deferrals are always the right move or Roth is always the right move. I think there's people on both sides of this debate where they're like, I will do everything I can to not pay tax today. It doesn't matter if my taxes are going to be higher in the future. A dollar saved today is worth more than a dollar saved in the future. And there is some truth to that, but it doesn't mean that you should always do that. And then there's the other side of the people who are like Roth every day of the week. Look at the look at the economy. Look at us printing money. Look at our deficit. Pay tax today because no matter what, you're going to be in a higher tax rate in the future. And one of my points to the all Roth one is, let's give the example, right? Let, let's say, Jacob, you are still playing baseball. You play in California. You're in the 37% tax bracket. And then now I think it's 14.4% marginal California state bracket. 51.4%, right? I just don't see a world where it's like, let's for sure go all Roth, right? Because then people say, but taxes are for sure going to go up. Well, let's say five years from now, we're looking and there's this tax bill going up and now the new top rate's going to be 60% because we have to cut into this deficit. What you could say is, I'm going to convert it all then. I'm going to use this next year or mm. these next couple of years, convert all the money because the worst case scenario is I convert at what I would be at today, right? But I think there's this whole thought and- there's flexibility to Roth in the way that you've locked it in, never pay taxes again, but there's flexibility to traditional too, where you can time conversions and you can time taking money out, especially the younger that you are. This is why it's so important to have qualified people on your financial team, because the right strategy could be the wrong solution for you. And the reason why I say that is because everybody's goals don't work out on a spreadsheet, right? If somebody's trying to accomplish something specific in your life, it might not make sense on a spreadsheet in that given year. And it's really important to be having discussions with somebody thinking about like, where am I trying to go with this money? And what does this mean for me? And then figuring out, okay, based on those things I want to do in my future, th these are the strategies I should be implementing. Because Thomas, to your point, so many people talk about like one size fits all solutions that you should always go Roth or you should always defer. And always when you're talking about finances, especially personal finances, is almost always wrong because the reality is it's so different for everybody. Yeah, and I think the other part about this too is there's what we think and then there's the what the client thinks, right? Like I'm working on a client right now who's like, don't plan on Social Security, it's not going to be here. I don't think that at all. I actually think there's a 0% chance Social Security doesn't exist. They're, all, they're already in their like late 40s, right? They're retired in their late 40s the likelihood that they don't get any social security 
is just crazy, right? And so, but in their plan, I'm like, that's fine. I will show you both ways. Like I'll show you and we'll make sure we plan in a way that you're totally fine if social security doesn't exist. But I also want to show you like how good things still obviously look even better if social security does exist. And so, you know, when we're thinking about your plan, what you can spend and do in 10 years is very different when we have way more certainty in your mind that, hey, I'm gonna for sure get social security because we're past these, the 2032 or 2034 or whatever numbers in the news saying that it's gonna be depleted and not exist anymore. Mm, that's good. All right, I think I think we hit that one pretty well. Next one on your list. If I get money back, my CPA did a good job. So we already talked a little bit about the idea that we don't want to reduce taxes as much in one given year, but we want to reduce it over our lifetime. I remember one year I got back $70,000 on my tax return and I was so excited. And now the more I learn, the more I think, so you're telling me that I just gave the government an interest-free loan of $70,000 for who knows how long, right? Maybe it was six months, maybe it was for 12 months. I think this is, again, a point that I will make on making sure that you have coordination amongst your team, because the CPA is typically not going to be as in contact with you as maybe your financial advisor is going to be, especially if they have a niche and especially if they're specifically, you know, in Thomas, in our case, if we're working specifically with you as a business owner, we're ingrained in the operations of that business. We have a really good understanding of how the year is going. And that brings opportunities for us to say, hey, it looks like we're making either way more money than we've made previously, or maybe we're making, you know, we're having a down year. And all those quarterly estimates that we planned on paying, maybe we don't have to pay the exact amount. We could pay a little bit less because our goal is we obviously want to make sure that we're not paying penalties. Okay. But we also want to make sure that we're not just overpaying and just paying just to pay taxes. So making sure, and I know you're big on this, making sure that we're getting tax projections done and figuring out okay, we don't have to get it down to the exact dollar amount, but we want to have a really clear idea and understanding of what is the tax bill going to look like when we get to next year and making sure that we're planning about that throughout the year. Yeah, it's funny that people have this misconception because I've talked to CPAs who are like, to be honest, like we just have people withhold extra and make sure they overpay because at the end of the day, like, then, then we look like the heroes. Like it, it's the same thing, but in their mind, it feels better to get money back. And And I do get there is some, good feeling to get money back. So like, Hey, if you want to overpay by a little bit, great. And I also, there's a lot of actually, there's a lot of ability for people to pay their Q4 estimate in January and say, Hey, I know we're going to be overpaying a little bit, um, as we fine tune things, but then we can just roll it into the next quarterly estimate. That's a really common thing for, I think, you know, if you make $150,000 and you get $5,000 back, it's pretty meaningful to have that cash flow wise. If you're a mm -hmm. business owner and you're making $2 million and you overpay by $20,000 and you just apply it to the next one, the opportunity cost to you is, is way smaller where a lot of times it's better to overpay and ensure that you don't have any penalties and you're always ahead than, than the opposite. So that's where I feel like the 0% interest loan thing is super important to certain people and to other people, it's like, that's actually might be a better strategy. So going back to our thing of like always and never, right. It's not always a bad thing and it's not always a good thing at the end of the day. Yeah. I think the most important thing is for just consumers to be educated around what actually happens when you're getting a tax refund. And then you can determine if you want to overpay. What I try to do in my personal life is I always try to overpay by just a little bit because it really bothers me if I have to pay any penalties to the IRS. Totally. Um, so I'd actually rather overpay just by a little bit, right? Making sure that I'm not going to have those penalties and I'm fine with that. But I mean, I've heard crazy things much to your point, like the CPA that says, well, our clients are happy because they're getting a tax refund. 
I, somebody told me, well, I like to overpay because it's essentially forced savings. And then I can be excited about using that money for a vacation next year. Look, money is personal. And if that is what it requires you to have forced savings and maybe use your money as a tool in your life, by all means, go for it. I would just tell you that I think there's a better solution out there for you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we talked a little taxes. Um, I see you got some investment stuff on here. I'm clear, curious what this one is. Yeah. I think one that I misconception I see is that complexity means that you're going to get a higher rate of return on your investments. And I think there's this, there's this, I don't know if it's an ego play, but the wealthier people get, the more they want to invest in things that they can talk about. Right. It's like, obviously it's the whole dinner party thing of like, look at all these private investments. Look at my solar investment. Look at the opportunity funds, opportunity zone investments that I've invested in. And in my experience, a lot of the people I work with that have done this regret it because their their balance sheet, what they're doing is so complex. They have all these capital calls, right? Like I was working with a business owner who had a ton of debt, just they were overspending, blah, blah, blah. And we're trying to get a strategy on debt, but every once in a while they'd have a $50,000 capital call, right? And it's like, how can we have a set cash flow? you know, plan when all of a sudden you don't know this year, there could be another 50 or a hundred thousand dollar capital call and next year there could be. And at the end of the day, you're paying like 20% interest over here because you're, you're investing in here and it's on a couple hundred thousand dollars. Like, I don't think it's better to be investing in this private investment you've had for six years that has paid nothing out. And all it's just asked for is more capital calls. And I think this applies to not only private investments, it applies to complex life insurance products, derivatives, like you know, options trading. There's just a lot of things that people think that they need to do to get wealthy that at the end of the day, like from my experience, the wealthiest people have concentration in two things, their business that they started or the business that they're an employee at that's growing really well. Like that is your fast track to wealth. Most times way more than, Hey, I found this random guy who has some really cool investment that I'm going to put my money into that I think is going to do really well. Like I had a client who he was like, Hey man, my CEO, got me into this investment with a buddy. And I'm like, oh no, what is it? And he's like, dude, it's great. 18% monthly returns. I put $10,000 in. I'm like, okay, let's check out the website. He goes, he doesn't have a website. I'm like, let's look up the company name. His CEO is listed as one of the owners of this company. I'm like, oh no, this is also seems a little bit scammy. I'm like, do you have a dashboard that shows kind of the investment where your money is? He goes, I don't. I'm like, Whoa, you got into an investment that you know nothing about. You don't even know what they're doing to generate these returns that your CEO is somehow listed as the owner of, that the location is your office. I'm like, I, I have no idea what's going on here. It's crazy. I, it's It feels like an ego play, especially at the beginning when people start really accumulating wealth. They think that they need to have complexity. It goes back to what we talked about with taxes. They think that if they make more money, there's got to be some solution out there that nobody's ever heard of. And it's going to be only accessible to them now that they're making seven or eight figures. And the reality is even with private investments, I know for me, when I first started making significant money, I thought, okay, well, I need to start adding in some complexity to my investment portfolio. And the reality is, as I've continued to grow wealth in my personal life, the complexity in my personal investment portfolio has continued to go down because I value that simplicity and I value making sure that I focus on things that I understand and what I would tell anybody on the complexity side, if somebody is coming to you with a deal that they feel like is the best deal in the world, the best question that you can ask them is, if it's such a great deal, why are you offering it to me? Right? Because every private deal they come to you, this is, this is a generational investment opportunity. And if you invest in this, you're going to make X percent IRR and it's going to change your life. Great. I'm really looking forward to potentially investing in this. 
but why are you offering it to me? And why are you not taking out debt to take on this generational investment idea, right? So complexity oftentimes, um, I think can be more of a killer for wealth. And look, they, you need to keep the campfire stories to things that you're doing in your life um, and keep your investments simple and keep them to things that you understand. I love the point though that you made about why is why are they taking your money then? Because that was the that the client I'm talking about. That's exactly what I said. I said 18% returns, okay? 10,000, right? 18% per month. Think about where you are after one year, where you'd be after two years, where you'd be after three years. Why would you take anybody else's money and have any risk there when yeah. you could just turn yourself into a multimillionaire like really, really quick? Sell your car, right? Sell yeah. your $30,000 car. Now you're at 40, 18% growth per month. Like, I don't think people understand. You'd be I'm like going nomad. I'm going nomad lifestyle. Somebody presents that option to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's your next one? All right. So I think one thing that people miss, they always think about growing wealth, but they don't often think about protecting wealth until it's too late. And this one kind of has a sports tie in for me in sports. Oftentimes you don't think about injury and you don't think about potential physical therapy or what we call prehab until you've already been hurt. And then once you've been hurt one time, maybe you hurt your shoulder or you hurt your leg. All you're thinking about as you go into that next potential season or that next potential game is what are the things I can do to make sure that I protect myself in the event that that injury happens again? And I think people need to think about this in their own life from a, from a standpoint of risk. We often underestimate what risk is in our life. And to me, there's a lot of misconception about how you protect yourself from risk. So I want to talk about one strategy in particular that I think Anybody that's high net worth to ultra high net worth, and even folks that have you know significant income and are growing their wealth should potentially think about it. And no, it's not a permanent life insurance solution. It's not something that costs a ton of money. It's umbrella insurance, right? So this is one of the best ways for, I think, people to protect themselves from risk. So umbrella insurance provides excess liability coverage. The example that I always give is if you were in a car accident and something really significant happened and the person on the other side of it, they said they want to sue you. Are you going to be protected in the event that happens? Because the reality is that could happen in a split second. We often don't think about that in terms of risk. We think about ways that we can continue to build wealth, ways we can save money in taxes, new investment opportunities we can make. All it takes is one bad thing happening in your life for a lot of it to go away. So it's really important as you're building wealth to also be thinking about risk and understanding that risk is real. Well, I think this is where the whole thing is like, but I'm a really good driver. And you're like, okay, well, what about your spouse? What about your kids? What about somebody slipping and falling at your house? What about somebody falling off the deck? What if somebody's on the trampoline with your kids? Like there's all of these different reasons. Um, but a lot, I, I love what you're saying. And I think, I don't know if risk is the right word, right? I always go back to this Morgan Housel quote where he says like risk is the things that we can't see or we can't predict. Everything mm -hmm. else is just like part of life and things that we need to plan for. So when I think about those, like that happens, right? We all know stories of things like that happen. There's car accidents, there's people's houses burned down or issues that happen there. There is the market decreasing, right? There is your business going under or having a period of time of not enough you know, cash flow coming in. Those are all things to protect against because th there's a pretty good probability that they happen. Maybe not the fire or things like that, but you're going to have down periods of life. And then there's the things that we can't see that we can't predict. And, you know, that's the things that I don't really know how you best prepare. But the way that I think about it is 
you have ample cash reserve. You make sure that you have a high savings rate. You make sure that you insure the big risks. You make sure that you have your estate planning done. You make sure you don't take too much concentration. You make sure you don't borrow too much. And by doing that, you set yourself up to be able to handle those risks that do come your way. Yeah. And oftentimes to touch on two of the things that you said, oftentimes when risk really starts to come into play is when you've had the big win. So I always joke with people, if you go to the casino for the first time, the best thing that could happen is you're going to lose. And then you're going to say, I'm not going to go back because I'm only going to go back if it's entertainment because there's no way for me to win. If you win the first time, you think, well, this is great. Like I walked in with a hundred bucks and I left with 150 bucks. Is this what's going to happen every single time? Two things you can do to really protect against risk in your own personal financial life, and Thomas, you mentioned these, is one, making sure that you have ample cash on the sidelines. Look, it does not feel good to have cash on the sidelines when you're seeing the market skyrocket, but let's take an example like COVID, right? COVID happens, the market drops, and you're saying, if I don't have cash on the sidelines, I don't know if the market's going to rebound as fast as it did. And the reality is, if that market stays low for 18 to 24 months, you need to make sure that you have cash to continue to live your lifestyle to let those investments come back. And I think the second thing is understanding that diversification is your friend. And again, diversification just simply means that we're going to own a bunch of different things. That looks different for everybody. But the reality is you're always going to be frustrated with some part of your portfolio because you're going to be saying, you know, meta stock in the past year and a half is up X to hundred percent. And it was just up 20% the other day. If I would have just poured my entire portfolio into that, think about how much money I would have. But the reality is the risk is that's one individual company. And we want to make sure that as we're building wealth, we're also creating more diversity in how we've built that wealth. Because Thomas, one point you mentioned earlier was, and I couldn't agree more that one of the best ways in general to build wealth is through concentration. And one of the best ways to keep wealth is through diversification. So understanding kind of how that transitions in your life can really help protect you against risk. Staying on the topic of risk and insurance, <clears throat> I know this this one is something that you've posted a lot about recently. Yeah, and so it's that low deductibles are really important for insurance. And I think this is a realization I had over the last few years and something I remember thinking about with my own insurance of like, oh man, this sucks. My car insurance has a $750 deductible, but X happened and I have to pay 500 bucks. Like, you know, but I think at the end of the day, what we have to realize here is that like, insurance is not to protect against the low dollar amounts, right? Like it's really not to protect your phone from having to buy a new thousand dollar phone. It's really to protect against super large outlays of cash. So this could be the example you said, Hey, I'm driving home. I get in a car accident. I hit a doctor breaks his hands. Never can be a surgeon again. $5 million lawsuit against me. That's going to hurt way more than moving from a $500 to a $1,500 doctor dollar deductible will. Right. And so I think, you know, the misconception is that, hey, I really want to just cover this this low dollar amount. But at the end of the day, like if you have a $500 deductible and you have a $1,000 car accident, you're probably not even going to end up going through insurance because you know that's going to raise your rates. So at the end of the day, something that I look for in insurance policies is actually, you know, covering the liability amount. So on auto and home, getting that $500,000 amount and then getting umbrella insurance to sit on top. And normally you can scale those up at and add umbrella just by reducing the deductible amount. And you get to pretty much the same dollar amount at the end of the day. Yeah. One thing that I always focus on, even in my own personal life is over insuring things and making sure that the deductibles reflect the fact that what I'm what I am protecting against is the big item that happens, right? I'm not trying to protect against the little thing that happens, but 
you know, God forbid my house burned down. I want to make sure that that's protected. You know, God forbid somebody slips in my backyard and something serious happens. I want to make sure that you're protected there. It's not protecting against the fact that like a window could break every once in a while. And is that going to be covered? Property and casualty insurance in general, I'll just say this is often overlooked when you're building and protecting wealth, but it is a really key component of a lot of the things that we do to help clients. And what I will say is on a percentage basis, it's one of the biggest things that's done wrong. I would say 90 plus percent of the time when a new family comes and works with us, the property and casualty is not done right. And the reality is it's often because it got sold with either, you know, pitched on low deductibles, pitched on cost. But really when when it comes to property and casualty, you want to be pitched on value. What is the value I'm getting for the price that I'm potentially paying? Totally. Couldn't agree more. All right. What's the next one for you? Taxes are set to go up. So my taxes will be higher in the future. All right. So this one is uh, is really interesting because taxes are at essentially historic lows. If you look at what tax rates have been over the past 50 years, right now we're at relative historic lows. And I even had this, um, I have this old pay stub that sometimes I post on Twitter and I went back and looked at it and I was like, oh, that was interesting. The top tax rate at the time, I think was 39.6%. Right now, the top federal tax rate is 37%. So we're down about 2.6% in taxes from then. But I think it's really important to understand the traditional arc of income and finances that oftentimes, just because taxes might go up in the future, does not mean that your personal tax rate is going to go up. And this ties back into something that we talked about earlier. It's making sure that you have some sort of long-term plan in place to help build your wealth. And I'll use myself as an example, right? If I continue to grow wealth and build wealth, there's going to be an investment portfolio and maybe some other investments there that are going to produce income. Maybe I'll have the business and I'll continue to produce income. But the way that that income gets produced might be different in the future than it is today, which then could potentially save me money on taxes. So always thinking about, yes, taxes are this part that like I have to deal with, but how the money is produced and what that arc potentially looks like of potential earnings up here and then earnings down here in the future I think is really important. And Michael Kitsis has this awesome slide that shows kind of the traditional earning arc of, you know, somebody earns lower income in their twenties and they start making more in their thirties and forties. It peaks in their fifties and sixties, and then they have significant drop off. So making sure that you understand what is your personal tax rate going to be going to look like, and not just focusing on what the IRS says the tax rate is across the board. Yeah. And I think this is where advisors say, well, I don't know. And because I'm scared of what it could be, I'm going to pay taxes today. And, you know, if that if that's your belief and that's what you want to do, I mean, that's totally fair. I mean, you're, you're just trying to choose certainty over uncertainty. Um, but I think the way that I think about this, and we were just talking about this example before with you in California, right? Like when you reduce taxes by being a traditional versus Roth, you are reducing at that top marginal rate, right? But let's fast forward now. You're you're 55. You're retired. You you know you're gonna have to live off your taxable account most likely, but you have the ability to say, hey, I have no income. Let's convert some of this money over. Or you can fast forward to 62 and say, I'm gonna start living off of my 401ks, IRAs, and I'm gonna live off of that money. What happens is, is it's not it doesn't come out at a marginal bracket. It comes out at an effective rate, right? You have some at zero because of the standard deduction. Then you have some at 10. Then you have some at 12. Then you have some at 22. Then you have some at 24. You have some at 32. The amount of income you would have to live off of to put you to an effective rate of 50%, like that marginal rate is, I don't even think you possibly could could spend that much money, to be honest. It would be <laughs> that high of a dollar amount to yeah. take off. Cody Garrett has the exact numbers on this. And it was something like, 
you know, if you're in the 24% bracket right now, marginally, you'd have to like effectively live off of like 900 or a or 900,000 or a million dollars to get an effective rate of 24%. And mm. so that's important to think about, but then it's also important to think about is, is again, those Roth conversions and timing it, right? Do you have sabbaticals? Do you move from two incomes to one? Do you have early retirement? Do you just have time before RMDs start that you can do these Roth conversions and fill up low brackets? I know we have a client right now, two good examples. One of them is a business owner. He's had a couple exits starting his new business. He's going to fund this business with his own money for the next two years. And he has tons of cash. We're going to do Roth conversions through the 24% bracket because he's been in the 37% bracket for super long. So we yeah. have another client who he's been an executive at a Fortune 500 company for a very long time. He just retired in his early 40s. He's going to have a little bit of income this year. Then moving forward, he's going to have about no income. And so we're going to fill up the 22% bracket right? And he's still going to have an effective rate of like 16% based on his portfolio, what he needs to live off of. And then the room to basically convert through 24. And because we're going to have a bond ladder for the next four years, that's not a ton of income, right? He's going to have enough dollars to live off of, but the income generated from it isn't a ton. So he's been deferring at 37 and now he's going to be able to an effective rate of like 15 covering what he lives and converting in the next three to four years, 50% of his pre-tax dollars. I love the real life examples there because to your point, it, it goes to show like there's different scenarios for different people, but it's always making sure that you have a plan in place. And oftentimes I think you would attest to this. We see people, you work so hard, whether it's building your business in your career that oftentimes you never come up for air to think about like, what should I be thinking about in the next three, five or 10 years? Totally. I think that's just part of life, right? All of a sudden you're running a business, you have a family, you got to maintain friendships you need to work out. There's just so many things that have to be going on that like your personal finances just kind of fall to the end and you say you're yeah. going to do it. And I think that's what like most of my clients tell me is one of the most valuable things about working with us is we just have dedicated time. They know we had to talk about finances. We're going to talk about it. We're going to give them the tasks to do. We're going to follow up with them. And instead of just going through the year and then looking back and be like, what happened? You know, what can I do now? You're actually able to proactively take the right steps through key areas of the year. Yeah, it's so important. To, I, I found it be really valuable to continue to ping people because the reality is we both work with clients that are really successful folks, but that also means they're really busy. Like Monday through Friday, it is full focus on what I'm doing. Typically, maybe on Saturday and Sunday, they're doing something in their business or their career. They're also spending time with their family. And then it's reset. It's back to Monday. And they have not thought about the task that we talked about you know, two weeks ago. And it's really important that we ping them and remind them like, hey, we need to move the next step forward on estate planning or need to move the next step forward on getting our tax return filed. Totally, I couldn't agree more. All right, what's your uh, next one? Okay, so next one is, there's a couple of these. So there's a lot of people who think that your investment rate is the most important metric for success. And then there's other people who also say like your savings rate is the most important metric for success. I think the reason that's a misconception one is that, you know, we all use the example, right? You're 30 years old, you make $100,000, you have $10,000 a year to invest, right? The difference between a 20% rate of return and a 10% rate of return on $10,000, not that meaningful, right? Like it's going to be an extra thousand dollars, a couple thousand dollars, you're going to let that grow. It's going to be really great. But at the end of the day, if you could grow your income from 100 to 150 and say, I'm going to keep that same investment rate, that becomes a lot more meaningful. And so the biggest advice I give to people is, I think, you know, I, when I was in college, you're a business major, everybody loves talking about investments and the things that they're investing in, the individual stocks they're investing in, their portfolio. 
But at the end of the day, in your 20s and your 30s, the best thing that you can do is grow a skill that is worth being paid a lot for, right? Mm. I think everybody wants to be, I think we all get the advice that like you you want to be pretty good at everything, right? And it, it is, it's important to be well-rounded. But if you look across everybody you know, the people who are the most successful are the ones who are really good at one thing, right? Like baseball, for example, yes. right? Like you are a pitcher. I'm Preach. really good at pitching, right? And I made a ton of money because I was really good at one thing. You know, what do we apply? Like personal finance. Like I went so deep on personal finance, learning everything I could for the first four or five years of my career that eventually I could be one of the best in the industry at explaining personal finance and teaching people about it, which helped me grow a business and make way more than I ever possibly could have in any other job at this age. And then I look at my clients, right? Some of them are so good at content marketing for this, or we are so good at influencer marketing for businesses, or we are really good at helping Fortune 100 companies understand how what tech to use, right? They just, they, they excel at something that they know deeper than anybody else. And they let that grow their income and build their wealth better than any investment that you're going to pick on the public markets is going to do. It starts with changing your mindset because we're often taught, if you think about traditional education, you're taught you have all these different classes you go to and you want to get A's in all of them, right? But the reality is much to your point, what pays you money and helps you grow your wealth is being really good at one specific thing and doing that one specific thing for long enough that you become world-class at that one thing, right? So, you know, we talked about financial planning. Even when I talk to athletes, if I mentioned baseball players specifically, if I'm talking to a position player and, and we're talking about how he can continue to build a skill set, oftentimes it's not saying like, let's get more well-rounded. It's saying, hey, you're really good at this one thing, but if you can turn that one thing into an outlier tool, that's what teams will pay for. And look, that's the same thing that's true for any part of your life. Um, that's not just true for professional sports. The other mindset shift that people need to make is they need to go from having this, you know, almost a fearful sense to this ability to feel abundant when they have money coming in and saying that I'm okay investing it back in myself, even though maybe I don't see a quote unquote ROI right away, right? If we put money in the S&P 500, three out of every four years, it's going to go up. So 75% of the time in one year, you're going to see an ROI on the money you put in there. If you invest in yourself, whether that's hiring a coach, uh, buying a course, going to a conference, reading books, whatever it may be, you're not going to potentially see an investment from an ROI perspective in 12 months. But it's going to compound so much faster than any other investment you're ever going to make. Yeah, totally agree. And I think the interesting thing to kind of fit into this theme, right, is like if we look at athletes, I think it's the perfect example, right? There are a few athletes that are amazing. Like, you know, you're Kevin Durant, like you're just amazing at basketball. You're going to be paid the big bucks. There's way more people who are, I fit a role, right? Not very many people could be the Kevin Durant's, but there are a lot of people who are like, I'm good at basketball, but I know that I can be really good at this role. If I work really hard mm. to be this player where my JJ job Redick. is to be, exactly right. Like he, he's, not the best basketball player in the NBA, but he was one of the best shooters. He owned one skill. And I think that's more transferable to life, right? Like some of the most sought after people are the people who are really good at one specific thing that can solve one specific problem because they know it better than anybody else. 100%. All right. Last one. What you got for us? 
Real estate, the most common topic online and the most common topic that I get asked from by clients. And I think there's a ton of misconceptions around real estate. So let me just preface this by saying that real estate can and has been an amazing tool to build wealth. It can also be one of the biggest traps that people fall into. And the reason for this is a few reasons, but I think it goes back to a lot of the stuff we talked about from a tax perspective is oftentimes when people first start in real estate, they're seven or eight people down the phone tagline and they've heard one thing. It's kind of been validated by somebody online. Maybe it's been validated by a friend and they think, I want to do that thing because they're telling me they can save money on taxes. It's going to outperform my other investments and I can see it, I can touch it and I can talk about it. Okay. All those things can be true, but I think it's really important to understand potential misconceptions that are out there. I mean, first and foremost, owning real estate is not passive. Okay. It's passive on your tax return, but it's not passive in your life. Oftentimes it's going to require you actually doing due diligence and putting work into whatever property you're buying, unless you're truly investing as an LP or a limited partner in a bigger syndication. And two, from a tax perspective, there's a bunch of potential tax benefits to real estate. But much like we talked about in the other concepts around tax, they need to be specific to you and they need to be specific to what you're trying to build in the future. Yeah. And I think, again, I I love real estate as an asset class. I think my learning from working with a bunch of people with it is you either go all in or you don't, right? Like so many people are like, oh, I'm going to keep my primary house. I'm going to buy a new one. I'm going to keep that one as a rental. At the end of the day, one rental is not going to be worth it. I basically describe it as like starting a little tiny business where you're going to make $5,000 a year. You're going to mm. learn have to learn everything that it takes to, to make this $5,000 a year and you're never going to go apply it to anything else, right? If you're going to go through all the learnings of what it looks like to be a good landlord, how to do it, how to have leases, right? Insurances, blah, blah, blah. You might as well do it with a bunch of rentals. Otherwise, it's just going to be so much work, so much headache a very high return on hassle to get very little dollar amount. So that's one realization I think I've had with real estate. The other one is that you don't have to get active participation for it to be a good investment, right? We all would love to be able to take these losses and offset our active income, but it's not as easy as they make it look on social media, right? Mm. Like long-term rentals, I'm sorry, you're not going to be a doctor. You're not going to run a business. You're not going to do any of these full-time jobs where you make a ton of money and get, and get rep status. You're not. If your spouse wants to, great. By all means, that's amazing for you. Most spouses, in my experience, don't want to do that. They don't want to work the $750 a year in this to write off, you know, save you $80,000 in taxes. They just don't. Short-term rentals, okay, great. You you can potentially do it, but I don't know if people have been following Brandon Hall. He's he's a great- Oh, that was such a good thread. Yeah, he's, he's a great CPA and he's sharing the information, just showing like, hey, People think that you're going to have the short-term rentals and you're going to drive to the store and you're going to drive to your rental and you're going to get it. And I was just talking to a client. He's like, Hey, you know, but my brother-in-law, he has an Airbnb and he's able to write it off. I'm like, how? And he's like, well, the CPA said that as long as he has the test where he does substantially all the work, I'm like, is he the cleaner? They're like, no, they have cleaners. They failed the test. That that's literally, they have a cleaner who's cleaning more hours than they are you lose the material participation test Mm. right there. So all these people believe all these things about the tax benefits and cost segregation and bonus depreciation, offsetting active income, but it's just because they haven't been audited and hadn't lost the the case yet. And so everybody sees this and they think they can do it. And there's just gonna be more and more stories of people losing these court cases and realizing, oh shoot. And the last thing you wanna do is lose a court case five years down the line, you owe $500,000 in taxes plus penalties plus interest where is that money coming from? I don't know. 
Yeah, the other thing that I would add too is from a real estate perspective, oftentimes people think about real estate and then they coincide it with it being a good potential tax move. And the reality is real estate is one of the biggest potential things you can do to potentially save yourself money on taxes. But just understand this, there is no legal way in the United States of America to avoid paying taxes. And oftentimes a lot of the tax strategies that come with real estate are tax deferrals, which means that at some point, you are going to recapture that tax. Now look, there's a perfect world where you exchange every property and you die and you get that step up in basis. People talk about that, but when you look at the percentages of people that actually do that, it's typically very, very low. So I think it's also important to understand that if you're doing this from a tax perspective, you need to understand what the potential tax implications are down the road because you're essentially deferring this potentially giant tax bill down the road. And if you ever make a misstep, it could have huge impacts on not only your real estate portfolio, but your entire ability to create wealth. Yeah. This is always where I come in and I tell people like, listen, we're on the same side of the table. My goal is to help you pay the least amount of tax over your lifetime as possible. You're making too much money and there's too many great tax planning tools out there to take advantage of, to try to cheat the system because you don't want to be spending the next 10, 20, 30 years of your life, always looking back and saying, I really hope I don't get audited for that. I really mm. hope that this doesn't come back to bite me. Like that that lack of peace of mind that you're going to have by trying to cheat the system is not worth it. Like I sit down with people who are making millions of dollars a year and this is what they say. And I'm like, I promise you saving $50,000 on taxes by cheating is not worth the fear that you're going to have to live every day with that this might come back to bite you. It's just not. 100%. Well, this has been an awesome podcast. Guys, I would recommend that you save this one and continue to listen to it in the future because there's a lot of stuff in here that you can continue to go back to and continue to, to sharpen your skill set on financially. And I know we're coming up on some big milestones um, for some ratings. So we would love for you to be able to rate the show, subscribe. Uh, Thomas and I are putting in a ton of work to continue to produce really good episodes for you guys. So I always want to hear your feedback if there's things that we can do to continue to improve the show. But until next time, guys. <laughs>